Trigger warning, this podcast contains a discussion about sexual abuse, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. Three years ago now and 10 episodes into the Just Checking In pod, I decided that despite all of the articles I'd previously written about my mental health, I wanted to have my own podcast episode to bring it all together into one piece of content. I couldn't think of anyone better to interview me than previous Just Checking In pod guest and close friend Lloyd Taylor. What I didn't envisage was the episode lasting three hours and me having to split it into two halves to avoid it being the length of a Lord of the Rings film for you poor listeners. Since then, I've grown and changed in a number of ways, so much so that I felt like I needed to catch up with Lloyd to talk about where Vent has gone since that moment, the self-development I've done, and how I've come out of that trauma state I've been living in for 20 years. I also want to talk about navigating dating as a, quote, mental health advocate with a somewhat public profile like mine, stopping self-harming and a little bit of relapsing, and a lot of stuff in between. This episode, I hope, will not be as long as part one and part two three years ago, but will still be a fairly substantial interview full of highs and lows. So this is how Freddie Cocker, part three, went down. Okay, Freddie, thank you for having me back and thanks for coming back and sitting on the other side of the sofa. When we did it last, we were on just checking in episode 10. 10. Yes, part one and two, and even before that, I was on episode, episode five, four, four, five, four, or five, four, four, four. Yeah, yeah. So we are now on episode. What this will be when it comes out. One hundred and thirty-five classic episode. Thirty-five. Yeah, maybe so, like one hundred and eighty all told. So obviously, a lot has happened in that time since November twenty nineteen. We spoke last. Was that when we did it? Yeah, on the pod. wow. So a lot has happened since then. Well, plenty has happened since then. So how have you been since then and have you got any updates on life developments? <laughs> Obviously we're going to go over some of them in this pod, uh, but we're recording this in your nice, fancy, shiny, new living space. Fan- really I'm not sure nice. I'd use the word fancy, it but yeah, fancy. Se- definitely shiny, yeah. Look at this, lo- look at this lampshade, it's fancy, man. That's my mum's choice, that <laughs> wasn't, wasn't mine, I can't take credit for it. <laughs> But it's fancy though. Yeah, I know, I agree. No, it's lovely. It's not fancy. Yeah. It's really lovely. It's a really, really Thank you, mate. Yeah, it's so good. How have you been getting on? Yeah, I'm good, mate. I'm very glad that you agreed to do this. I felt like I needed to do some more venting yeah. and reflect on what has been a life-changing few years, really, yeah. since we last chatted. And even at that point, I was saying that, you know, vent had changed a lot of things and opened my mind to a lot of things but in these three years since doing the podcast and it's really come on leaps and bounds and I've met some amazing people hopefully I've helped a lot of people I like to think we've got the gig back on so just checking in live number three happened in uh when was it march april 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 2022 so that was great Mm -hmm. and that was really 
pure to see everyone there and people who had supported Vent in those years. And I've done a lot of growing myself. I've finally come out of a, what I now probably realise is a trauma state for mm-hmm. the last 20 years. And I feel like I've got a lot of catching up to do almost in life now that yeah. I'm in this comes back. I know I shouldn't think like that, but that's kind of like almost how it feels a little bit because I now feel like, oh, I'm now in a place where most people were in their early 20s mm. or when they were 15 16 or you know even younger than that so yeah i'm looking forward to this conversation and i'm really pleased that you decided to say yes because you're the only person that i feel could have this with me so nice. yes well i'm very pleased to have it and i'm appreciate that you invited me to do it so let's get into it okay so freddie when I was reading up for this pod, looking at some of the writing and the work that you've been doing with Vent since we last spoke, you've been writing a lot, really. I didn't is, think I was good at it, but I, mean, I ended up writing a lot, yeah. Even that process must be quite lethargic and, and quite therapeutic in a way to actually process your thoughts and get them down on, a, not just get them down on paper, but in a way where you're communicating something that is really intensely emotional and almost stressful to people that haven't experienced it before or have experienced it before in a way that's like very clear and very concise and I think you've been doing that really well especially you've been reading them myself and we're going to go through some of your experiences since we spoke last to now and I think that they really hinge around and like you said at the beginning the introduction this kind of sense that you're almost over the hill now of a quite traumatic period of your life and now you know, looking over the other side. And it seems like the linchpin in this process has been a new type of therapy that you went through called EMDR therapy. Can yes, you that tell is correct. Me a little bit about what EMDR therapy is, what does it stand for? Maybe not what it is because we'll get into how those sessions went. But if you can tell me how you found it and a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. So It's commonly used for people who have had PTSD or need to tackle their PTSD. Obviously, PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. I did two rounds of CBT, which I might have said on the last part. I'm not sure what the timeline was for that exactly. Mm -hmm. And that was really good for management techniques, for my anxiety, for overthinking, rumination, and just giving me what a previous guest called CBT stoicism in a can just be able to manage those daily hurdles essentially okay but let's pause and yeah. explain what is CBT as well to people because some people are not listening I have no idea what I didn't know what CBT was right. either give a little bit of context on the process of that therapy in comparison to the new the, the yeah so CBT is called cognitive behavioral therapy which basically aims to challenge negative thought patterns or processes that you have and it's one of the blanket forms of therapy most people if they do therapy will do cbt yeah Yeah. it's commonly offered and that's just you and a therapist you're speaking Mm -hmm. uh, there's not you're not doing you have to do homework normally when you finish so you have to bring stuff to the to the sessions Mm -hmm. and then you have to basically work on those negative thought patterns and and retrain yourself essentially whereas emdr Mm -hmm. it's really going to the heart Mm -hmm. of the trauma it's really examining what happened in those traumas and trying to heal them whereas cbt is i guess kind of trying to manage them without healing them if that makes sense i guess that's probably the easiest comparison to make from a general perspective but in regards to the therapy itself so what happened with emdr is i went to my first therapist for emdr and 
She said, first of all, bring 10 negative memories and 10 positive memories to the first session. So I made a list of 10 negative memories and the negative memories were easier to make for obvious reasons and think of. And the positive memories were trickier, but I still got quite a lot of them, which was good, which I was quite pleased with myself with. That is a really interesting activity to do, even if someone's listening now to this and thinking to themselves, I have a little moment to think, could you actually get... 10 really really the most positive feelings or moments in your life you know down and 10 most negative i tried to doing it myself and i was thinking this i'd struggle to and not even like i'd struggle for one or the other to have that sort of like very introspective moment to look inside and think to yourself really with a fine tooth comb and think you know if i had to put these down stamp these down it's 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 quite it's quite interesting uh, process to do yeah it is but I managed to do it, thankfully. And then what she did afterwards was she said, think of that top memory. Yeah. Think of that top happy memory. And what you're going to do, you're going to use it to create your own safe space yeah. or safe place or happy place if you want to do the Happy Gilmore comparison, which is the easy one to do. Mm-hmm. So what you do is you get both your hands together in a butterfly motion and you would put them over your chest at the start of every session and you tap your chest, you close your eyes and you think of that memory. And what that would do, that would get you into a really nice position mm. you'd breathe kind of in and out and you'd do some deep exhaling and inhaling and that would get you to a really nice place for you to tackle whatever negative trauma you were about to tackle mm. so why i initially wanted to do it was to tackle the sexual abuse which we spoke about in the last episode we did but talking to her and talking through the negative memory she said well i think we need to tackle all of these other things first and heal those which i was surprised by but i guess made sense when looking at it from an outside perspective so once you do the butterfly thing you then think of one of those memories Mm -hmm. and she said to me what is the negative cognition associated with that memory so for example one of the cyberbullying events that happened to me the negative cognition was something along the lines of I'm unlovable or I hate my body yeah. or something to do with body self-esteem, yeah. right? So she said, right, focus on that mm-hmm. and cycle through that memory and go through that event. And what you need to do, all done on Zoom, by the way, so God knows how I would have done it in face-to-face. Yeah. I would sit there and I would fix my head straight ahead and I would move my eyes while keeping my head straight from side to side. Like a sort of one of those, do you remember those, what do you call them? You always see in stereotypical films with therapists in them, and there's those balls that tick. Newton's cradle. Newton's cradle. It's like that. Without it was like that. Being too cartoonish and trying to make light of a serious situation, the whole time I'm thinking like, this is real life hypnosis, kind of like yeah, it style, is. Like yeah, self yeah. hypnosis. Yeah. This idea of like you know getting into this, unlocking this ability of the human mind of mm. being able to sort of reset it with almost repeated motions mm. and like these cycles cycle cycles trying to reset something it's very interesting i don't know enough about it but it's very intense and yeah. what happens when you move your eyes from side to side is that your brain starts to heal itself mm. you might have to do it four or five times in a session for some memories you might have to do two or three sessions to heal that memory yeah, essentially true true and what starts to happen is that you will begin to change the negative cognition into a positive cognition so once you're done she will say well how strong is that negative cognition now on Mm. a scale of one to ten you Mm. might say it's eight and then you might do a bit more and it's six and then it's five and then it's three and it's zero and then she might say well how do you feel now and then that 
is how your mind changes it to a positive cognition mm. and that is how the memory heals itself now mm. what makes it very hallucinogenic mm. is that for most of these memories previous versions of myself would start to emerge and start to talk to me yeah. so i've had conversations with multiple versions of myself in a room i mean i went to my old university halls and ended up in a three chairs in a room and talking to my eight-year-old self my 15-year-old self and my 21-year-old self is your eyes are closed your hands are so that's no that's the safe space this is doing the so eyes when you're doing the eyes you don't have to have no like, so, no so you're doing you're, you're sitting your eyes are open yeah you're following a finger or mm, you're following sometimes you do but i was i was able to just do it in my room yourself. and able to do it myself yeah okay, so but sometimes they'll that. say follow this but i was like just go like that and then and when it becomes more intense, it, you start forgetting what yeah. you actually the, your visual. It becomes you as it, as the memory you becomes more intense, your eyes flick almost subconsciously. They go more quick and more yeah. quick. So I almost had to sometimes control myself and slow it down. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you're yeah. having some almost like um, yeah, you can say halluc- uh, like hallucination, but you could say like a kind of going into a dream state or outer body. Sort yes, of state the latter, I would say, where yeah. your perspective is suddenly changed, mm. and then you're in another space, and it gives you the distance. Um, and uh, yeah perspective to speak with former versions of yourself really that's yeah. how it materialized uh, now at this point i'm assuming that did you know anyone who had already done this therapy before uh, have you, had you spoken to them and, and did you know what to expect or is this how it manif- does it manifest very differently in each individual person? i think there are similar experiences i spoke to one friend who's a former colleague at work and she recommended me do it mm-hmm. and she said if you're open to it it's life-changing so i gave it a go and it was life-changing it really was and the version of myself who spoke to me the most was was eight-year-old me yeah i mean the 15-year-old me kind of came out a few times but he wasn't talking to he didn't talk to me as much as the eight-year-old version i've sat there and cried with him he has cried and i've held him he's held me i've, I've gone into memories yeah. as they've happened as the version of me now i've gone into memories and become him i've you know with the sexual abuse i've went into that memory and beat up the bully who was about to sexually abuse me mm-hmm. like as him mm-hmm. i've gone into my secondary school and actually i probably won't say that one because that's quite dark but yeah my therapist told me to basically take revenge on people in my own head and it was just massively cathartic yeah yeah yeah. very very interesting and in terms of the fact that you are on zoom Mm -hmm. whilst this is happening is there ever any fear i just wondering if people listening are thinking you know imagining themselves in this situation is there ever any fear that not having someone physically in the room means that you can't like is there a snap out of it kind of moment is it very easy to just stop that experience or are you kind of locked in yeah it's a good question so when you're doing the eyes and you're going you do them kind of like in bursts Mm -hmm. so you do them and then she'll say stop and then she'll say how are you feeling your body my i'll say my arms are tingling or my groin's tingling or i'm feeling energy going through my legs or my chest feels tight or something Mm -hmm. like that depending on the, the trauma that i was addressing and once you're done with a session you'll lock up the memory again and you'll do the safe space and you'll get yourself back to a nice happy position where you can then go about your day sometimes the the memories can be very intense i cried quite a lot Mm. cried loads actually so you want to be in a good position where you finish i remember the first couple of sessions i did i was absolutely just wiped out yeah i was absolutely wiped out for a few hours and then obviously i got used to them as i was going but the first round I did, 
I was doing them one a week. So it was very intense because I just wanted to kind of bang them out, get these healed, get this healed, get this done. Yeah. And then the second round I did once every two weeks just to give myself a bit of space, distance. just a process and distance yeah. and, and really reflect on what had gone on in that, in that session. So some traumas I was able to deal with quite quickly and deal with in one session whereas some of the real big scars and we'll probably get onto this with the sexual abuse sometimes they took two or three or there was a particular trauma within the sexual abuse which took two maybe one took three and the self-harm also I healed from which took I think three sessions that was probably actually one of the most intense things I had to heal from because that was a lot of reflecting on why I did it Mm -hmm. recognizing that my nail biting was Mm self-harm and going back and talking to that eight-year-old me as to why he was doing it as a cry for help essentially well we'll definitely delve into that in a little bit more detail but as a sort of step back now that you finish your two rounds would you say from this point that would you mark it as a success would you mark it as a uh, something that you you would recommend to other people how would you summarize the whole experience it was life-changing for me i would say if you are open to it and you feel like you have a lot of deep traumas that you need to really get to the heart of, please try and access it. I was lucky in the sense that I tried to access it through the local services. I was told that the waiting list was so long that Mm. they closed it, and I had to go privately. I've got to be quite careful in what I say here, Mm. but yeah, I had to go private. I paid with it through my own money. I viewed it as an investment in myself Mm -hmm. but I know that not a lot of people can be in that position I'm not going to sit here and go just go and access it because I know it's not as simple as that but I would say if you have the means to or if you get priority given to you and you feel like it will help you then please try and do it if you are open to it and ready excellent well, in your article regarding these rounds of therapy, you described it as your kind of emotional baggage has gone from a boot full of suitcases. A Samsonite heavy-duty yeah. suitcase to a small, to yeah, a nice, carry a kind of carry manageable in. travel bag. And I thought that that was actually a really nice analogy in terms of having to carry that trauma around with you. But I think now is the time to go back, open those suitcases and have a little rustle through them. Um, and um, What are we going to find here, eh? Yeah, and see what we can find. So let's get into that. So Freddie, as we've spoken about before, you suffered some child sexual abuse when you was in school. Obviously in our first podcast, we unpacked that and we spoke about it in detail. But since that time, You also had a chance to write some articles detailing these experiences a little bit more and the fact that these sort of repressed memories that are, what, 17 years old now, that, you know, it was time to shed a little bit more light on them because often amongst men and boys, these sort of experiences get repressed fairly quickly and then they lay dormant. And so I wanted to ask you first, why is it so common in men and boys particularly that these sort of abuses are packed so deep away and actively forgotten about and repressed? I think, first of all, that stereotypically, men are obviously not as inclined to speak openly about their mental health as women. And obviously that is not the case, you know, individually that could be different, but that's probably the first main reason I would say. I would say, B, the 
stigma or awareness around male childhood sexual abuse has only really come to light in the last, I would say, five, maybe to ten years max. Mm-hmm. We've seen the case of Barry Bunnell and, and the football victims who yeah. were kind of some of the first male victim survivors to come forward and they were groundbreaking in their bravery. Mm-hmm. And I think without them, there certainly wouldn't be as many men speaking out about it as they are now, including myself. Yeah. I would say that for men, a lot of this could be tied to feelings of their masculinity being threatened yep. or judgment. And I think that is quite high. I think that is changing. I think some of that is internalized and perhaps a perception rather than a reality. Yeah. But maybe in the past it would have been a reality, sadly. True. So I think those were the main reasons I would also say that on average, I think the time for disclosure for a man is about 20 years from childhood. So I was actually above the average. I think I was 25 when I came out and I was seven when it happened or seven or eight. So that's about 18 to 19 years. Does that mean that like after 20 years of repressing the memory, like it won't come up after 20 years, right? No, no. So what do you mean by like as in 20 years, uh, a period of disclosure? Yeah. So on average, it takes 20 years for them to disclose the sexual abuse at a minimum. It can take 30 or 40 or 50 years as we've seen. Right. So that's the minimum time it takes for someone to disclose that they've been sexually abused as a boy, as a man. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, it definitely seems, uh, I mean, it is a very uncommon still for uh, males to be, to feel like they're in a comfortable enough position to speak about it. But also, it seems to be not just a male problem, but a problem for girls as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, me and you, I'm not an expert in that experience, but this is not just a male problem either, is it? It's a female problem as well. Yeah, no, 100%. And I, I can't speak on the female experience for obvious reasons but i'm sure that there are different stigmas and i'm sure there are different disclosure times for them i would say that with men i think the stigmas can also differ in regards to who sexually abuses them so if it's a man who sexually abuses a man there could be a different stigma if a man as i'm interviewing a lot of these victim survivors some of them have been sexually abused by women when they were children so i think there's a whole host of different stigmas within this category that i'm not an expert on but i'm i'm learning all the time and and hopefully i can give a voice to those people true and i think that obviously the experiences at the heart of this trauma are all linked to sex and sexualization and sexuality sexuality which men do not like talking about by the way already (laughs) yeah exactly it's already like a closeted emotion in british culture at least you know you're taught to be you know a bit more prudish i guess Mm. but in a world where sex is also one of the hottest lures in terms of your attention through media, any sort of TV shows, uh, songs, lots of things are linked to sex now. And for you to be a victim of some sexual abuse means that surely your triggers then, there's lots of opportunity for you to be triggered by even quite general you know, materials. When you put it like that, that makes sense. But I didn't see that at the time. So mm-hmm. yeah. How are you with your triggers? And and you speak in the article about if there's a TV series or something that you something visual that you're seeing that could be like some graphic abuse happening, maybe on a any sort of program that might have that in, which is when I was thinking about is not 
that rare you know at first I was thinking well how often do I see that on tv but really I thought actually that's not uncommon to see you know whether that's through people telling a true story or someone reenacting something you know or someone trying to shed light on real life experience it seems to be something that you could run into accidentally yes so how do you deal with having triggers that are potentially around you all the time it's hard i would say the triggers that used to affect me quite badly were torture or self-harm or physical abuse scenes so my favorite anime is attack on titan yeah and for anyone who watches attack on titan i'm not going to give massive spoilers because i don't want to be unfair but there is a mechanism in it which is very very self-harmy and there was a scene in the first series which was so self-harm graphic that i just about looked away in time but it still scarred me quite badly there's also been scenes of physical abuse in regards to like torture and i'm quite squeamish in general so that's probably a little bit related to it there was a tv show called the sinner where there was a really horrific scene in the end of one of the series and that like almost scarred me for that genuinely almost did scar me for life like Mm. sometimes i think about it i have to kind of do some mental tools to like take it out of my head Mm -hmm. i couldn't like prepare like sometimes there's scenes where you're like oh this is going to be bad and you sort of like turn away and you wait till it's over but i couldn't prepare for it it is hard i spoke in the article specifically on the sexual abuse about pornography triggers and you know when you're in school there's always that weird kid who tries to show you like really graphic sexual imagery or porn and and for the listeners who are listening to this if you don't know who it was it was you so I would say that that was quite hard for me growing up because I Mm. didn't realize why it affected me Mm -hmm. and I had to work through that in therapy I can still watch pornography if it's very soft Mm -hmm. like if there's not a lot of you know there's no male genitalia in it basically (laughs) I don't really want to see that but those were the scenes that I found quite triggering and I had to work through in therapy like it's quite normal for someone who's been through abuse to have those triggers well pornography seems to be a subject another sort of sensitive subject for people to talk openly about but there's sort of two interesting veins of kind of social cultural issues that are happening or to do with sexuality and sexualization that are kind of colliding here where you could say two of them are similar types of abuses Mm -hmm. yours is that you're being triggered by graphic pornography and so you're staying away from that type of media but the other one which is quite common in men and boys is an overindulgence yes 100 percent. yeah yeah where young men and probably women as well are being affected by suddenly growing up where you can access pornography at any time obviously we've seen from current affairs even mps are accessing pornography you've got to be roasting to do that so it's like (laughs) in work um, and you know there's definitely a problem with people having this kind of addictive tendencies there's Um, a spectrum yeah spectrum two ends of it also people who are suffering from sexual performance related issues where it's linked to what consuming too much pornography in a strange way do you think that your triggers pushing you away from graphic pornography has kind of saved you from that other vein where (laughs) it means that you're not going to become obsessive with pornography and it's not going to affect you in that way although the results might be kind of similar there's pros and cons yeah yeah, you're almost there are two abuses that are happening Uh, it's funny how they're interacting here 
I would agree with you in the sense that it's probably shielded me from a lot of the exposure to hardcore pornography, which yeah. I have no interest in watching or consuming. But there are also cons to it with regards to, I guess, cons- I don't want to get cancelled here, as a man consuming healthy amounts of pornography yeah. or being able to enjoy that element um not going to be too explicit about what i say but people can probably guess what that means and that is something that i wrote in the article about struggling with and i had to work through in therapy i don't really know how to articulate it but i've kind of worked through that i'm still not there yet a hundred percent but my mind is a lot more healed and i'm more self-aware of it i Mm -hmm. think Mm -hmm. i know that there are people who I'm probably related to who will listen to this. So I try not to be too more explicit than that. Well, you know, the theme of this is obviously the fact that this all stems from sexual abuse, you know, and childhood sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And the only way that we can find out more about it is more and more people being open about it and speaking publicly about it. And one of the people you spoke to, Callum Hancock, you mentioned in the Mm -hmm. article as well, you spoke about, this interesting dynamic which is when a victim of a male victim of abuse goes through this questioning their own sexuality in terms of starting to question themselves are they attracted to men and this seems to be a common theme it's mentioned in a couple of your articles mentioned a couple of articles that i've read as well when male victims have this sort of uh, their sexual yeah heterosexual male victims yeah yeah yeah. challenged yeah so do you think that the fact that these thoughts are so deeply unsettling and anxiety-inducing for people says something also about our current views on sexuality as being, like, f- super rigid, you know? And yeah, I think so. I also think that it's something very unsettling because men are just not trained to talk about sexuality at all. Yeah. And there's... A fear you know like you like i say in the article it's this sort of like ocd or if this it's this internalized anxiety and it would screw me up because i would think well i'm not attracted to men i've not really had a sexual feeling towards a man yeah but it infects your mind in trying to make you think that way and then makes you scared that your mind is trying to think that way it's a very weird cycle to go through yeah and i had to work quite hard in therapy to sort of understand where that was coming from and develop tools to combat that and I will say as a thank you to you Lloyd because Mm. I didn't feel like I could talk to anyone about this before I was working through it but I knew that because of the conversation we had and I knew you're a gay man yourself Mm. that you'd understand Mm. and I'm incredibly grateful to you for listening because you were the first person I talked to about it Mm. so it's a very weird thing to talk about it's a very weird experience but i'm grateful and thankful that i was able to articulate with you and i was able to work through it because yeah it is it is really hard to talk about Mm. and it provokes deeply unsettling emotions in Mm. you when you've gone through your life fancying girls and having Mm. sex with girls and all that but then you also start to realize well is a lot of the issues that i had in 
getting a relationship or starting a relationship to do with the sexual abuse and I realized I have and I, I also realized that I probably had some sort of anxious avoidant mm. attachment style that I was projecting and didn't realize and now I've, I hope I've worked through that and gone into a secure position I still have anxiety about dating which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about mm-hmm. but for the male victim survivors who have gone through it and who have been abused by men by the way mm-hmm. it's a different experience I think to being abused by a woman it's horrible yeah, it really is. And I joke, I kind of darkly joke in the article that I would rather talk about suicide yeah, all day long gonna, than this. Yeah, I was going to come on to that. Yeah. Like, that really struck me, hit home really deep. And, you know, I'm sure people listening to it had the same sort of, uh, people reading it had the same sort of reaction of like, this topic cuts so deep, you know, that mm. people like, well, that, that you would rather speak about suicide and death, you know, people choosing to take their own life. Yeah, and the, the, I should also say that the feeling that it comes from is something called involuntary arousal where your body, and I don't, I don't actually remember this happening, but your body as a child reacts to the abuse. Yeah. It isn't stimulated by it, but your no. bra- your, I initially thought my brain was stimulated by it, which is why I had all those feelings of anxiety, but yeah. my therapist had to challenge me very hard to say, your body is a child, you have a child's body, your body is going to react to something which happens of that degree. And then because that happens, then that creates the cycle loop of where you're thinking, well, what does this mean? Does this mean I'm gay? What consequences is this going to have? I've also spoken to one victim survivor called Tim Verity. You actually acted upon these feelings and I'm not going to speak for him, but you can go into his episode and he talks about what that led to. Mm-hmm. Whereas I went on the other end of the spectrum, I was completely mind fucked by it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you term this in one of your articles as this idea of it can sometimes materialize as an internalized homophobia or Mm. something called homosexual OCD. Mm. Now, that's quite an interesting term in terms of trying to define this quite fluid concept with words, which is always difficult. But this is a term that is linked to that involuntary arousal, but it's really interesting from a psychological point of view this sort of homosexual OCD. So can you explain that term a little bit more? Yeah, so it comes from the event itself, which I spoke about in the last episode, and it lasted three to four seconds of my life, in theory. And it's just shaped so many of the mental health experiences and difficulties I've had. And it's this internalised anxiety or overthinking that you're questioning your sexuality, that that it means you're gay, essentially. Mm -hmm. That is what it means in a nutshell. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like an irrational, compulsive overthinking, I would say. Yeah, and this overthinking, I mean, is a buzzword that's going to come up, obviously, a lot during this pod, because, and just during you speaking about your experiences, because it seems like this mechanism of overthinking can sort of create a vicious cycle for use, rumination, and can often spiral. Mm -hmm. But thankfully, you could resolve these kind of spiraling episodes with some sort of techniques to fight it, um, including, you know, creating an idea of a sanctuary and, mm. and other things like that. Can you explain to the listeners what techniques you use to kind of break yourself out of those cycles? Doing the MDR, I learned a couple of techniques to A, heal the trauma and B, have a technique to keep any intrusive thoughts. That's what they are, essentially. They are heightened intrusive thoughts. Mm-hmm. And one was... The only way I can describe it as an analogy is, do you know when you're clicking like minimize on a window on like a browser and it sweeps it out and it like t- takes it out of your mind? Yeah. I kind of picture it like that in my head. 
so like the thought will come in yeah and i'll just click minimize it'll like my brain will click minimize and it'll go yeah, yeah yeah and it'll come out of my head yeah and you i mean now you're in a position because of the emdr but before that you didn't have that nothing mechanism. i didn't know how to it would it would come on at night or something i'd be sitting in my bed and it would just i would have like a sweat of anxiety thinking about it yeah very interesting now obviously i think that what we're going to get into next deserves its own sort of section and focus which is an unfortunate event that happened during your emdr therapy and as your trajectory is going upwards and you're feeling the success and you're feeling some sort of progression in the therapy there's a a sudden change and that was that your therapist sadly took her own life so i think that that is a subject that we should speak about a little bit more and how it affected you and how that affected your therapy okay so freddie imagine now you in your first round of emdr finished that yeah february 2021 now i think you're on an upward trajectory you can feel your you can feel these processes starting to take hold a little bit in a way that cbt didn't for you before and things are looking up um i should caveat this by saying i still had a bit of a way to go but i ended it because of financial reasons right. and I, I was planning to kick it back up again right. in you, a few months yeah you knew you knew you was moving in that direction now you had found a therapist through your friend at work no i was recommended the, the, the method but i found my therapist through my former cbt therapist she right. recommended her okay yeah and then unfortunately there was a moment where you must have found out this pretty, you know, sad news. So can you tell us a little bit about what happened, at what stage you was at, and when you found out the news that your therapist had sadly taken her own life? Yeah, so it was around April, May, I think, I believe, or maybe June, actually. I can't really remember the exact timeline, but I was still in my parents' house, and I was trying to contact her to say, I'm looking to do more therapy in X month. Can we kick it back up again then? I've still got things I need to resolve. And I wasn't getting a text from her. So I thought this is not really like her. So I sent a message to my old CBT therapist. And at the time, I also had a friend who was wanting therapy. And I was going to recommend my EMDR therapist. So I sent a message to my former CBT therapist saying, I can't get hold of her at the moment. I'm also looking to recommend her to a friend who wanted to access and she sent me a voice note saying oh, I'm really sorry but she passed away a few months ago which was obviously a big shock to me mm. and she didn't want to tell me the reason out of respect to me which I completely understand but I couldn't really understand how she had died because she, she was in her 50s obviously she wouldn't disclose to me but I didn't think on the surface oh she was struggling with anything mm. or you know any health conditions or anything like that so I left it for a couple months and then out of interest, I just Googled her name to try and find out. And I found an article that said she had taken her own life. And I was a bit disappointed, actually, that it disclosed the method, which mm. I didn't really like. But, you know, people make mistakes. And I went back to my CBT therapist and look, I said, I found out that she's taken her own life. I'm obviously really upset. And she said, you know, I didn't want to tell you that out of respect to you, yeah. which I, I appreciated, but I, I felt like I needed closure on it. And yeah, it was just a really, really sad 
period. I wouldn't say it fucked me up. I was definitely really upset. Mm. And I think in a previous life or previous version of myself, I should say, I might have overthought or ruminated and thought, oh, well, is it because my therapy was so intense and yeah, blah, blah, so blah. But then I actually didn't think that, which is good. Yeah. So you mentioned that in the article, you know, that another version of you would have switched on this self-blame mechanism, which is probably the first thing that you would think about, you know, it's like, especially therapists, you're thinking immediately link it to yourself. Is it actually my experience has been so dark? It's actually affected, you know, and contributed to workplace stress or something like that. Then you can begin to spiral into your own spiral of self-blame. But luckily on this occasion, you didn't turn to that. No, I didn't. And I was quite proud of myself that I didn't do that. I had a period of a week or so where I was quite upset and took it as that grief period to mourn. Mm -hmm. And then went about the process of trying to find a new therapist, which I did, thankfully, after a lot of searching and budgeting and stuff like that. But yeah, found a new therapist which who was good and really helped me. Yeah, and you speak about this idea of uh, teacher syndrome with therapists and this idea that in the same way that when you're a student at, at school, you often just think of a teacher as a object, you know, a teacher, rather than as a human and as a real-life person who has a life going on outside of the classroom this sort of moment when this happened with your therapist that was a kind of teacher syndrome moment with your therapist where you realize like these therapists and psychiatrists also are capable of being in a bad place themselves like just being a therapist doesn't mean that you're going to be a a tip-top mental condition you know like and uh, completely in control of your own experiences so that was really interesting to read and also i think the fact that these sessions were happening over zoom and you actually hadn't met physically no a quirk of the time of the pandemic meant that these people that you're actually sharing this like very very close intimate experience with you'd never actually met no it was quite a a weird situation being introduced to someone going through rounds of intense therapy to finding out that they'd passed and the whole way through you hadn't actually got to meet them so that's another interesting layer that the pandemic has thrown up and i'm sure that people listening to this who are doing therapy themselves over zoom now it reminds you that you haven't actually had a sort of physical connection with these people Mm. it was quite profound for me the teacher syndrome thing you you mentioned because yeah therapists are people like everyone else and because they deal with such traumatic things you think that they've got everything together because if they didn't have everything together they probably wouldn't be able to be a therapist but you know what i've realized is that everyone can have issues underlying and therapy is work for these people just like anyone else is doing a really hard job so yeah it was it was a tough period for me but i came out of it and my new therapist was really good and really helpful and i also did all my sessions with her on zoom because it was hard to find a local one mm-hmm. to do face to face. And also like, I just thought, well, I'm used to this now. I can do the next stage via Zoom as well. So do you think just staying on this virtual therapy vein, do you think that that's something now that's going to remain and that that's been an actual benefit of the pandemic where it's allowed people to actually be confident in saying, I can still achieve some of these goals in my own space, maybe in a place that you feel more comfortable, not having to obviously speaking a lot about financial and the amount of time that these things take and being exhausted after a session being able to do that in your own space or being able to choose when and where you do it through the virtual is that been a, like a huge plus plus or do you think 
at some point you want to return to this idea of going to see someone in person I think it's a balance. I think for me, it really helped me because I could plan it around my day. I didn't have to factor in, say, half an hour or 45 minutes commute there and back to see a particular therapist. I think for some people, doing it via Zoom is really helpful. I think for some people, doing it via Zoom is not as helpful. So I think it's a balance. I think I've much more enjoyed coming back to the physical interaction with a lot of things. But the therapy one was the one thing where doing it virtually has helped. But I'm sure we'll probably talk about it at some point. You know, for me, getting back to seeing people face to face, whether it's dates or whether it's going to football, going to see mates, that has been the best for me because I thrive off that physical interaction. Definitely. And, you know, just to kind of finish off this section, you mentioned it earlier in the pod, but I wanted to speak about the actual route to arriving at these therapies, whether that's private or how you can get there because it's one thing identifying that you need or that you would like to explore therapy the next thing is finding some sort of vehicle to get yourself there whether it's virtually or sat in front of someone people listening who have never kind of attempted to set that up might not realize how difficult and how sort of like arduous this process is i mean you mentioned that at the time of writing one of your articles that you couldn't get free EMDR treatment through the healthcare system. And also, you're not in exactly in the right position to start paying for it privately or private tra- treatment at the time of writing. But you're still well aware of the fact that you've got scars that are remaining. Yes, you've done a few rounds, but like there's still more work to do. And do you think that these people get into this... It was a purgatory for me at that purgatory, point. Purgatory, yeah, it was. Kind of like, and that's common for a lot of people where you might have finally plucked up the courage to say, like, I am going to do this and yeah. I am going to explore this. I've healed some, but not all. But, um, yeah. but even if someone's not started yet and they're just thinking about going to therapy and they've considered it and finally they say, okay, I'm going to do it because it takes a lot of confidence even just to make that first initial step yes. into I'm going to do it. Then to have to, after that, work out how the hell you're going to, get this thing to work are you going to have to pay for it privately are you going to go on a waiting list where you're going to be maybe maybe six 12 months even more yeah 24 you know you it can be years until that and and i couldn't wait that long well i'm not a patient person anyway but i couldn't wait that long obviously a lot of people in these situations that's the reality is that you cannot wait that long Mm. because like we mentioned in this section there are real very deep real life consequences that can happen if these things are not addressed correctly yeah. so on that to finish this section where do you see the system improving there where is there going to be some sort of more do you, are you aware of more opportunities where people can access therapy where people can find affordable reasonable because it, it leaves people in the lurch a little bit especially if you're not in a position financially where you can even consider private health yeah you're those people are cut adrift mm, it's a tough question and i've got again i've got to be careful about what i say here with regards to the answer but what i will say is that there are some mechanisms which people can access through work if their company offers it so for example there's an employee assistance program which a lot of companies do now where you can access in a sort of in-house counseling service yep. which i did through the bbc when i worked there my nhs job has an eap as well there's loads of companies that are now offering eap but for a lot of other companies, they might not have an EAP and you might have to go privately. Obviously, you, like you said, with the waiting lists, some of them are quite ridiculous in, in the country at the moment, which is a really 
sad state of affairs and then you also have got to think about you know do you want medication or do you need medication so there's a lot of things to think about and I don't have the answer I don't think I can probably say too much more on this without getting myself in trouble but yeah there is obviously a lot of work to do and a lot of what people say in the commentary circle is that you know it's all well and good saying speak out it's okay to talk mm. but then what happens after that yeah yeah that's and probably the most i can and say can you even get a professional to talk to you know yeah. it's one thing talking is like who mm. are you talking to i also had to pay for a private diagnosis as well because i needed to have clarity as a person and i also needed being in the public sphere mm. i didn't want to be someone who was saying oh i have this i have that and i'm actually self-diagnosing and i paid quite a lot of money for that mm. to have that closure but I also know I'm in a very privileged financial position because I used savings and I used my own paycheck to do that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's um, it's a difficult one. Out of interest, I'm fine if, you, if, if you're not comfortable telling me this, but can you give me like a rough ballpark of how much these things cost? Because I've got no idea, you know, what some of these moving parts are individually, separately, collectively. You know, how much money is there in this? It's bad to call it an industry because it makes it feel like a business but yeah what what are the costs of some of these these uh so i paid something like 350 for private appointment for a diagnosis assessment for my first round of emdr i think i paid 60 pounds a session Mm. and then for the second round of emdr i think i paid 50 pounds a session Mm. they were on the lower end of the financial spectrum i was scrolling through a lot of therapists who were offering sometimes 70, 80, 90, even 100 pounds for an EMDR session because it's more niche mm-hmm. than, say, CBT. So CBT, you could get, in theory, you could get a session for 20 pounds. I think my former CBT therapist, if I hadn't gone through the AEP and then they brought her to me, I think she would have normally charged 40 pounds a session. Right. So... That is the kind of ballpark I think you're looking at. Obviously, there are very expensive CBT therapists, but that is the best answer I can probably give from my own experience. Okay, so Freddie, I wanted to speak to you. You mentioned it a bit earlier in the pod about this action of Mm self-harm and self-harming and what that actually means. Now, people listening might immediately think of i don't want to be too explicit but they might be thinking of cutting yeah specific methods of self stereotypical methods yeah yeah so but they don't often don't think of self-harm outside of those means so do you want to speak a little bit about the various types of self-harm that exist and that you exhibited as well With me, self-harm, I did in a variety of methods. So the main one I did, and probably the first one I did, was nail-biting. And I did that quite horrifically until I worked through it in therapy. However, I also did other self-harm methods, which people might not think about. And that included in my university years, which I've written about, a lot of overeating with junk food, which made me put on a lot of weight. Also, excessive drinking, substance abuse to the nth degree and reckless behavior through them essentially 
those were the main methods of self-harm that I did. I'm also someone who, akin to the nail biting, you know, picks, scratches, things like that. So, you know, whether it was picking a scab or picking a spot when my Mm. acne was really bad, that was probably something as well. But the nail biting is one I had to work through in quite heavy detail and figure out why I was doing it recognizing that it was actually self-harm because I didn't even think about it as self-harm. There was a point in the EMDR therapy, and I never forget this, where as I was healing some of the traumas, the nail biting was getting worse. Like I was biting more and I was I was going, why am I biting more? Like it's yeah. getting really bad now. Yeah. And ripping off cuticles, blood. I remember one time, this was years ago actually, I remember buying one of my males to a point where it got infected and I had to get it lanced at whips cross and it was like one of those painful things like I've ever had done like I actually had to push all this pus out yeah and I fell off the chair like I actually fell off the chair almost fainted from the pain yeah so after that obviously I was like wow this is actually quite bad so I then took it to therapy and I said nail biting is something I've always really struggled with and it's caused me a lot of shame but I've never been able to stop. And my mum and dad have always to say, well, when you want to stop, you'll stop. And all this sort of like uninformed at best, I would say, messaging on it. But then I'd also feel really ashamed when I'd do it. I'd normally do it in some sort of like session where I'd not buy it for a couple of weeks and I'd buy it all in one go. Right. And it would feel like I was in this sort of hypnosis state mm-hmm. when I was doing it. Mm-hmm. So I'll go into more detail if you want, but that's essentially what I was doing when it comes to self-harm. Okay. And, you know, I think we should clarify self-harm as being an act where you are actively trying to do harm to oneself, which might seem obvious. But when you speak about drunk food, biting nails, these are definitely examples of people doing harm to themselves. You know, and it could be eating disorders as well. That could be a form of self-harm. Is a really yeah. interesting angle on that because obviously there tends to be maybe culturally i don't know why but there seems to be some sort of when it comes to eating disorders people are a little bit less sensitive and less ready to categorize it as self-harm and sometimes maybe a little bit like not really understanding enough about what's going on kind of blame the individual rather than uh, maybe some bigger things that might be going on but there are various reasons that people might turn to self-harming So expressing or coping with emotional distress, trying to feel in control of a situation, a way of self-punishment often. Communication, yeah. A cry for help, yeah. Yeah, and like a response to some sort of intrusive Coping mechanism, yeah. Yeah, coping mechanism. And the reason why nail biting might strike a chord with people is that it's very commonplace. I bite my nails. I'm not someone who bites them back to like a crazy extent. I'm not doing it in a painful way. But I very often find myself when I'm biting my nails, if I'm watching the football and I'm really anxious and nervous, my nail, and I, I'll watch my dad do it. After reading the article, I started noticing it all the time when people do it. When people, sometimes people are just thinking. Or bored. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes people are thinking through some sort of like, trying to think through something bigger and using it as a sort of distraction method. In the same way that your EMDR therapy used various ritualistic physical actions, it's quite easy to see how something as simple as nail biting becomes one of them, but how it can drift into harm, self-harming when it gets to the point where you're actually causing yourself pain or Mm. damage. So I thought that was really, really interesting. And I wanted to speak again about some of the misconceptions about self-harm. 
mm-hmm. and how not all self-harm methods leave visible scars some of them are going to be internal and some of them are not all self-harm acts are done for attention which i think yes. is also some a stereotype that's always labeled to people who are in these sort of situations so can you speak a little bit more about this idea of like maybe the perception that self-harm is and not just a cry for help but a statement of attention seeking attention yes i agree with all of that and all of the categories that you eloquently put there about why someone self-harms i fell into all of those it was a communication tool for me it was a cry for help it was a way to release emotion i don't remember doing it but i probably did it after i'd been bullied Mm -hmm. in a particular incident Mm -hmm. it was a coping mechanism it was all of those things and there are so many misconceptions about like you said self-harm because people think about self-harm just as cutting and things associated with that and stereotypically the things that those emo goth kids third wave emo goth kids did our age sort of thing which became very a harmful stereotype for them people who listened to emo music got told that all they did was slit their wrists yeah yeah so there's a lot of misconceptions and i think when people start to realize that it falls into many different categories so Mm -hmm. like i said overeating or undereating yeah or binge drinking yes so so like is there a way that you could say like people who are smoking a lot of cigarettes who are aware that cigarettes are very bad for you but do it in an attitude of like you know i don't care or it's really difficult when you start thinking about self-harm like this there's no kind of straight lines Mm. it's very blurred and when addiction comes in like smoking addiction addiction or drinking addiction and and then and then so gambling this is what i'm talking (laughs) about so yeah so like at one point it's yeah addiction and it might be some sort of unconscious habitual um like it was for me it was unconscious until i realized to be conscious of it is it is it still self-harm at that point or does it become quite serious self-harm when you have realized that it's a problem and yet you continue doing it is there an easy way to sort of define those moments mm. or are they so blurred that it's, it's not worth it's it, not worth that's a tough question because i don't think you can say it becomes a worse problem when you're more aware of it yeah. because it was probably a, as big a problem to start. to start yeah it helps massively when you become self-aware of it but yeah. the hard part is addressing it and healing from it and stopping once you've become self-aware of it you know i said to you before we did this pod that i had like a mini relapse because one of my fingers i've nibbled quite a bit i was gonna say so yeah so but those those my hands at the moment and i cut them quite a lot when i need to so what i think i need to do is sometimes when i cut my nails i have a little nibble to kind of find them so what i need is a nail filer So that's what I've realized I need to do. Uh, yeah, it's funny. It's funny in a way. I mean, not the topic of self-harm, but it's funny how we have to replace some of these rituals with new rituals and new habits and new processes. And just doing that can be really, really helpful in your own experience. So one thing I wanted to ask you again on this topic is if you discover someone that you know, you care about, you love, might be self-harming or you enter- identify something that they're doing, that maybe they haven't even noticed as self-harming. How do you go about addressing that? What's some good ways to do it? I know in your article you speak about maybe encouraging them to speak to a GP, asking if they would like support. It's probably a good place to start, you know, not acting without even their, their consent. It's good to ask them first. 
let them know that you're there for support and these sort of actions. But I think the more interesting point is that you said what you should not do. And I think that that is probably going to be more interesting information for the listener. So what kind of things, if you recognize someone self-harming, should you not do? First of all, don't tell them immediately just to stop. They know they probably need to stop. And it's not helpful for them to hear that. Don't recoil in horror and make them feel shame. Like I used to get a lot of people to go, oh, look at the world. Why do you bite your nails like that? Mm. And you know that you do it. So them pointing that out just made me feel more ashamed. You know, I used to hold my hands under my legs like at sort of social events when I had had a really bad session and self-harmed because the scars are visible. You know, although cutting is a is a very horrific self-harm method and my heart goes out to all people who have taken to that method there is a way of hiding it you can wear long sleeves you can wear a jumper that hides something you can't easily hide your nails mm. you can't wear gloves the whole time mm. if you bite something where it bleeds and you need to put some antiseptic on it someone will, might see that antiseptic or you might need to put a plaster over your finger and then you have to lie and say oh i I cut myself cutting an orange or and sometimes I have cut myself cutting an orange and I put a blast on it but yeah. sometimes I'd use that as an excuse yeah so it is hard those are the main things I would say not to do I'm sure there are other things that I've said in the article about what you shouldn't do that I can't remember off the top of my head I but think the only yeah. one that you didn't mention is not to threaten them with taking away their control don't put it to someone that you I mean threatening someone is not going to help in that situation regardless But like you said, insulting people, calling them attention seeker, these sort of very negative attributes that are going to cause people to spiral. And almost in a way, like you said, is compounding internal thoughts that they're having already. Mm. That's the irony is that often the person who is often the person who is actually doing this to themselves is well aware that these are not beneficial actions. Mm. So you reminding them. It's not going to help the issue. Mm. And like you said, it's a cry for help and they might need attention, not seek attention. I think that's the way we should frame it. They might be doing it so they need attention from someone. They need support. They're not seeking it. I think changing the word attention to support in any of those dialogues really helps. Even if you're someone that's saying, oh, they're just crying out for attention. If you just swap that with support, it works. It makes it so much better. It really disarms the language and if you don't have empathy or sympathy in those situations then you're not the right person to talk to so fred another article that you wrote and that you touched on in the last segment is about your battle with acne and the process of medication and how you move through that i mean obviously that is quite a common experience for young kids teenagers i have had people in my family that have suffered from it i know friends that have you know i know that you have and again there's different grades of how badly you can suffer and what types of acne you can have and i'm sure that everyone's experience is slightly different but you had a particularly bad experience and i think a line that hit home in your article was that you felt like you was living a with a physical mask that you couldn't take off Mm. and this idea that you felt like you couldn't hide can you speak to me a little bit about your experience with acne and what was the extent of your acne can you describe it to me yeah sure so i developed acne from the time of about 15 16 my mum didn't think it was acne but then we went to the gp and they said no this is acne so i had quite severe acne on my face 
yeah. which obviously is noticeable. Yeah. <laughs> so I had it all around my mouth and lips, mm-hmm. forehead, some of my cheeks. And I had to go on a course of lamocycline, which is an anti-acne drug first, and a cream, which is like the starting medication. That didn't work. Mm-hmm. So I then had to go on something called isocetronin or racutane, as it's called for, well, most people will know it as. It's a very intense drug. Yeah. It causes a lot of drying. It causes a lot of tiredness. For women, they cannot take it if they are pregnant because it harms the bum-born child. Right. So they have to have pregnancy tests like every month, I think, or something like that. Obviously, for me, I didn't have to do that, but I did have to do blood tests every month or so when I was on it the first time. So this drug, at first glance, what it's doing is it's dehydrating your skin. It's yes. taking the moisture out of your skin. Because acne is often caused by a buildup of natural oils um, in pores, oils and dirt, or the way that your skin reacts in the same way as it would react to excess oil or dirt. It creates, it forms a, a cyst or a spot, basically. Yes. It feels it and then it thinks that it's, being, it's got an infection, basically. Correct. So I went on Racutane when I was about 17 for about four months to five months. And it was 20 milligrams a day. So mm-hmm. one pill a day mm-hmm. after dinner. And that worked very well. You're immediately had, feeling your skin is changing. My, my All my face was drying out, which I had to use different oils and creams to kind of use on a daily basis. But the spots were gone in about four or five months. Mm-hmm. Now, what I didn't do was stay on it for, say, a longer period and get rid of the acne on my back and spine. Mm-hmm. That was heavier it was more pus filled and what i now is known as cystic acne and this is painful isn't it yes. it's not just you know it's not like a aesthetic it's actually painful yes. you, you you your body is fighting infection it thinks it's under attack basically and mm. it's quite aggressively fighting infection and your back obviously becomes very sensitive to pain sensation yeah so I came off Rakutane and at the time there was a bit of controversy around the drug and people's mental health. So I won't go into that, but that was probably the reason why I was told to come off it. Ironically, I didn't actually tell them about my mental health history at that point. I don't think if I, I think I've, if I had told them my mental health history, I wouldn't have been allowed to go on it, to be honest. So it went on for about six or seven years and my mum would put salicylic acid on my back, which mm. would like burn it off. Mm-mm. And then If you didn't do that for a week, it would come back. Mm -hmm. So I had to do the whole thing again. (laughs) I go on limacycline just to prove that I was. It was it was bad enough to go on. Speak about this, the proving. So you had to prove to them. So how did you have to prove it? Do you had to go through basically a treatment of what they said first and say, "Listen, it's not working." Yeah, I told them that at the start. I said, "Look, I know this is not going to work because I did it the first time." But they said, "Well, you have to do this just to show that it's because they can't just." put you on Rakuten straight away because it's quite an intense drug. And the second round when you had it, they upped the dosage, right? Yes. So what were the effects of the... That was a lot more intense. I don't remember it being that intense the first time. I think because I was younger and, you know, whatever. So they told me to go on 40 milligrams a day and I had to take two at once. Yeah. So I initially didn't do that because I thought, bloody hell, that's quite a lot to take at once. So I was taking one in the morning and one in the evening. Mm -hmm. But they said no... I did that for like two months, I think, or one month. And they said, no, take two at once. I was like, cool, right, this is going to be a lot. 
So I took two at once immediately after food because if I didn't do that, it would just fuck me up. Mm-hmm. And that was very dehydrating. And I started to get dryness all over my upper body. Yeah. I've got dryness all the way up my arms. Yeah. I got this sort of weird eczema marks yeah. on both identical parts rashes. of my elbows. Rashes, yeah. yeah. And if I wore like a jumper that was nylon, it would rub yeah. and it would make it really bad. Yeah. I had dryness all over my face. I had both my lips were cracked, sides of my lips, so I had to put yeah. um, Aquafol on that. Your I had lobe. dryness inside my ears. Yeah. I had my earlobe was dry at one point, kind of parts of my nose. And yeah, it was just it was just really hard. And my skincare routine became like a zero hour routine to a one and a half hour routine every few hours to keep hydrating, hydrating. and keep putting cream on and keep moisturizing. So I saw it as well, short term pain, long term gain. Yeah. So I did that. I had to go on that for about six months, maybe How did more. It go? What's the what were the results? Well, it was during the pandemic, so lucky I didn't have to go outside a lot. Right. <laughs> so I was kind of like it, it came at a perfect time. Yeah. But it was really hard. It was really hard. And I would say to people that if you do want to go on it, you have to be quite resilient, anti-fragile, whatever word you want to use, because it is quite intense. Mm -hmm. But I eventually, it came off my back. I was very happy for that. I had scarring from it, which I'll take. But then what happened was I became really panicked because I started to get spot-like things on my arms. Mm-hmm. and I became really anxious and really upset because I thought this is just the acne coming back and it's just relocated to a new place. But what I found out was that I had something called Kerastasis pilaris, which I've had since I was like six or seven, which appears on my arms, mm. on the upper parts of my arms. What is that? It's like a acne-like skin condition. Mm-hmm. But then also what was happening was I had a condition called folliculitis, which was interacting with it at the same time, which was going all up my arms, my lower half of my arm mm. so that was what i was getting really scared about so i then had to go on an, a separate course of antibiotics for that with a cream and a pill every day thankfully that worked i've got to go back for a rescheduled appointment as a check-in in june but i had immediately a just anxiety attack i was like i can't go through racketane again I, yeah. it was just so intense i can't do it again i can't yeah. do it again but thankfully i was able to get through that and yeah, I just feel so much better in myself because I think I've shown you pictures about yeah, when yeah. it was really bad. I would be points in the night where I would subconsciously scratch myself or yeah. it would rub and I'd wake up with blood on my bed sheets yeah, yeah. where they had popped. I would feel really self-conscious taking my shirt off at the beach. Mm. And yeah, it, it was just really hard. It was just really hard to feel confident in yourself when you've got that you all over also, yourself. You mentioned that one of the first things you did social media wise was you went and untagged yourself from as many photos as you could where you could see that you had acne or you could see that you had acne on your face or on your back and obviously this sort of dented your confidence aesthetically and your like romantic confidence i already had massive self-esteem issues anyway and that was just a part of it yeah so to have that layer on top you know and to feel like aesthetically that you're not confident is definitely something that's going to really impact you mentally your mental state so after all of this process and the drive you had to get through these these treatments, would you say after all of it that it's been worth it and you feel better for it now? Yeah, it's definitely been worth it. Okay, so that brings us quite nicely into the realm of dating mm. and romantic <laughs> relationships. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason it's interesting is we've not just gone through and discussed internal 
issues and loss of confidence so that's probably a word better to say that but mm-hmm. we've gone through that but we've also gone through physical and aesthetic ones as well and any one of these things would have a huge impact not just on your personal life but in turn on your romantic relationships with others so to have all of them happening at the same time and kind of compounding each other you can see why it would lead an individual to feel less and less confident or more and more timid about entering into the romantic space as someone who's you know suffered these experiences so i want to just kind of dive straight into it <laughs> and ask you what is it like dating with a backdrop of this colorful backdrop of experience it's hard and i would say it's hard because it's out there in the open i'm a very googleable person when it comes to my mental health experiences because they are all out there and i guess the reason i find it hard is a because i can very easily lose control of the disclosure and i work very hard on disclosure filters as we'll probably come to yeah but b it's also the i guess anxiety about what that will mean for how i am perceived i guess that's the control element as well for sure so you're already going to be thinking about you know you're thinking of too many steps ahead almost yeah it's like you're thinking like oh if this happens then then this this and this down Mm. further down the line and because there's so much to disclose rather than yeah like and then it stops you from even enjoying the moment that's in front of you because you're thinking so much about what's going to come next and if someone asks naturally about ven or i say they say what do you do it's like well and they go why did you start it and i go oh this that's nine hole. years of trauma i have to now yeah. just like sit down have you got t- yeah have uh, you got three hours <laughs> <laughs> episode 10 part yeah. one and two yeah yeah exactly. that's true but that's that's it comes to my next question which is where do you start like where do you start i find it difficult mate i find it difficult because i've trialed and errored with different forms of disclosure like yeah. i've tried getting it out there in the open early because some people have said well if you just get that out in the open early it filters out all the bad apples but i'm just like well i don't feel like that's completely fair to someone who needs to take that all in and i, and I want to keep dates like the early part like fun and flirty and whatever because mm. the minute you start and this is what i found i'm sure you've probably found this as well mm. the minute you start talking about your mental health or their interest is peaked sometimes I end up having to deliver bloody mental health first aid to someone in the club and it's like they're disclosing all their mental health experiences to me. And, and that's fine. Like, I enjoy that and it's good, but yeah, you don't always want that. It does. It just kills it. all the flirting. It's true. Yeah, it, it is true. But that is an interesting quirk of it, isn't it? Is that often when someone, when you experience someone who, or maybe if you haven't before, when you come across someone who is open and, talks about those kind of things in the same way that we've you know started this podcast describing men and boys having an issue with disclosing their past or an embarrassment with their history or whatever it is that the irony is that when an individual finds someone who is willing to do that that it actually almost invites it on from the other yeah yeah of course naturally yeah like that's a positive thing in Mm. in a lot of environments 
And Especially with lads, like they it, come to me and they'll talk about it and they're like, oh, I mean, I, romantically, da, 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 da. Yeah. It's in lots of environments, is it very beneficial? But romantically, it can still be really beneficial. But like you're saying, it's like <laughs> sometimes you kind of want to be like, I don't want to talk about this now. Yes, I'm trying yeah. to flirt with you. Yeah, like, yeah. can we not have this yeah. massive deep discussion? Right, please? because it brings you into this other space. Yeah. And then it, it also almost brings like a power dynamic where you're aware that you're trying to support them with their mental health and helping them articulate and it's actually like oh i actually really want to flirt with you and try and take this and try and get off of you and it's like well if you're talking to me about your anxiety or you losing your dad or you know an eating disorder or something it's like well i can't now go anyway so like i really like your shoes yeah (laughs) or and something more risque than that (laughs) yeah 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 of course of course well that's really interesting so uh, let's take it back even further so We've spoken about the pandemic, we've spoken about virtual relationships and people not meeting in, in real life. And obviously that brings us to the world of social media and dating apps. Yes. And obviously they are the main vehicle people use to meet each other nowadays. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. Or fortunately. Remember well, there's there's my good... perspective is unfortunately, but True. I can hear your I hear your perspective. But for everyone, yes. there's always that sort of, you know, there's always different perspectives. So in a way, all of the pros of that vehicle introducing you to people you never meet finding people that are far away people who have like similar interests in you it doesn't actually address the issue of people who have suffered from mental health issues and how do you find the dating app world how does it serve you as someone who you know has had this past is there any sort of form of addressing it do you feel like it's a not a very welcoming space for people with that experience or do you think that more could be done to make it easier how do you go about that i found it really hard mate because i know speaking to girls that sometimes they would see a guy without his second name as a red flag that he had something to hide so at the start i was keeping my second name on my profile i put my instagram on my profile because i thought well you know i want to try and be as, as transparent as possible but then I started to be anxious because, like I said about the Googleable stuff, because people could easily find my story and then I would lose control of that disclosure. I would then lose control about if someone ghosts me, is it because they've seen that and said, oh, this isn't for me? Because like, digital rejection is so much harder for me to deal with than face to face. Face to face. I've got stories about being rejected by girls, which are so funny. And I just tell people it. And it's funny because it lasts, rejection lasts five seconds and you move on. Do you know what I mean? Separate episode. Yeah, separate episode of my my failed love life. But you can own about it. And I, you know, Miss Pat, the great comedian said on Joe Rogan's podcast, if you can laugh about your pain, you own it. So I find it really funny. But digital rejection is so much harder because you haven't got the reason. Someone ghosts you after talking to you for five minutes Mm. or you ask someone out and they they unmatch you. I just found that digital rejection really hard. Mm. So all of that sort of combined together. And again, like you said, with the disclosure filters, all of my friends and everyone who listens to this podcast know my story and they know 100% of it. So I can talk to most people and they'll by and large at least know part of my story, which is yeah. great because I don't have to do all of that work. Whereas with someone new, I have to do all of that work from the get-go, which is really hard and it's a lot for them to take in. So I have to kind of do it piecemeal and sort of work it out and I still haven't really worked it out yet. So yeah, with the dating apps, I got to a point where I hadn't really had a lot of success on them. I'd had sort of seen one or two girls and they didn't really go anywhere. I'd had kind of dates here and there and I just thought, well, it's not really serving me. So I just came off them a couple of times during the pandemic and then I came off them permanently a few months ago. 
and I've just felt a lot better in myself but obviously when you do that you're you kind of feel like you're and I shouldn't really say this but and it shouldn't really be the case but it feels like you're kind of taking yourself out of the dating scene just mm. because of how online everything is how now predominantly yeah virtual it is. and how hard it is to meet people like i find it really difficult to meet people True, now but and you, you go out tonight you go to good social places like once in a while stuff, mate it is hard to you know because then you put then you put pressure on yourself yeah, like oh like i have to meet to someone at this night and i have to yeah, go and chat to it's these people true. like it's really difficult it, but yeah this is an already difficult situation you know regardless of any sort of extra layers that you're adding on top it is hard to meet people. You yeah, know? It, it, people it, don't it, go out as much now, and the, when you do go out, you feel pressure to all of meet these someone. Stop and people from, but it's still possible. But it's you're right; it is more difficult. And there's like a re-stigmatization of like work relationships now. I found like there's right. this sort of new taboo over work relationships because of the positive work that was done with me too in challenging yeah. predatory behavior, but also True. like the over the overspill of that where oh, people are more scared to flirt at work because they don't want to get in trouble yeah, so that's, true. that's a yeah. space that's been de-romanticized hasn't it? yeah i spoke about this with a previous guest called kat rosenfield she talks a lot about how there's been surveys done in america where women have said it's never appropriate to there's like a certain percentage of women who she said they said it's never appropriate to flirt with someone in the workplace but it's like well pre-dating apps something ridiculous like 60% or 50% yeah, of relationships started to work. So if you take away that yeah. element, then everything is going to go on the apps. But then with the apps, and obviously speaking to this from a female perspective, there is a lot more difficulty in filtering someone or knowing if someone's a creep or knowing if someone's a good or bad egg through an app, photos. through a picture. Because yeah. any guy could put a nice few True. pictures of himself and be a really creepy person in real life. But True. when you're in real life, at least you can kind of sense you can visual try. cues or yeah. body language or the way someone speaks to you with girls, if you are a girl, sorry. And you can get that sense and fuck them off. Whereas yeah. with dating apps, it's obviously a lot more dangerous. So. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. I mean, and it, you really could do a podcast on it on its own. It's, it's mm. so, so interesting. And compl- yeah, I found complicated. it hard. I found it really hard. And I, I don't wanted, know what the solution is, but yeah. What I wanted to ask you though, past the dating apps is, have you ever been on a date with someone where they have basically come to you and told you about their past, like um, with mental health issues and stuff, without you even disclosing yours first. Has anyone ever? Have you ever been in a situation where you've been on <gasps> a date with question. someone and you're probably racking your brains thinking like, "Oh God, when am I going to bring this up?" And, <laughs> and then they say to you, and they tell you first. Have you ever been in that situation where someone's <sighs> done that before I you c- and kind of taken the onus off you, but not consciously, even mm. just someone who's just kind of come? There probably has been. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but there probably has been. But the thing is with me, mate. I don't care when that happens because I'm, I've had all this experience. Like I'm not a judgmental person. Like if someone comes to me and says, I've been through this, I've been through that. I'm not going to judge them for it. I'm not going to be less attracted to them, mm. you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Point. But it's... I feel it more from my own. But here's my point. Why, if you can think like that, do you not assume that there's someone out there who's, who's going to think exactly the same thing back to you? Why, if you clipped that, listen to it back, <laughs> And it's going to be long in the editing process when I hear this back. I'll be like, oh, you're right. If you clip that, edit it back, and you listen to it, re-listen to it, and think if that was someone, that's someone's thoughts from the, you know, the girl sitting across mm. the table is thinking the same thing. You know, the reality is that you're more than capable of thinking that. So why wouldn't and why wouldn't someone else? And if someone didn't, they're not going to be the right person for you, are they? So it's, 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 yeah. it's not as impossible. Maybe sometimes these things maybe feel... They built up to feel more and more and more impossible or unlikely, but 
it's a strange game that it's really really it's hard to find someone but when you do it's, it's amazing yeah it is difficult mate like i had a guest who spoke about sexual abuse to her twins and she said she spoke about being raped to her now boyfriend on the second day and i was like fuck me how the hell did you do that like it's such a brave thing to do like yeah i would never have taken that risk yeah but i don't know from the male perspective i don't know i just find it i just find it really difficult and do you think there's a bit of toxic masculinity in terms of i know that's a, another strange phrase but do you think there's another layer of men thinking like they don't want to be vulnerable again is it i built, is it i think it's a fear that, that they i think it's a fear that the, the woman will lose romantic interest in them from expressing that vulnerability yeah. and i certainly feel that to some extent yeah. not maybe not as strongly but i certainly feel that to some extent yeah that's a shame that that thought even exists because it's not it's, i'm sure if you spoke to the vast majority of women they wouldn't you. yeah i I'm, I'm sure they wouldn't say oh if a man did this then i would lose romantic interest in him but you know no, i'm of course, i'm sh- even, i am sure though that if they said oh a man cried on a date she'd be like oh this is game over <laughs> I'm pretty sure depends I can on, on the girl, Fred. Yeah, depends yeah, on no. the girl. Trust me, there's some sweet, sweet girls out there. And, you know, the reality is that it's a cliche to say there's someone for everyone, but it's a cliche that exists because on many levels it's true. There's people out there that are the complete opposite of that, you know? Mm. And there are people out there that, yeah, you're right, you start crying, they're getting the bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're thinking this game over, yeah. But, you know, you've got to take solace in the fact that, you know, there are other people out there who will react completely differently. And the real task is how do you find them? Yeah, I hope so, mate. I also think just in general, and I've said this many a time, I just think dating apps have just fucked up our generation's collective view of beauty, standards, the way we perceive potential partners. This is men and women, by the way. And I just think they have ruined quite a lot of dating in general and i think it's going to take us a long time to recover from it personally true but i don't think that you have as much to worry about as maybe you think you have and freddie i tell you now on air you're a catch <laughs> you're smart Cheers, mate. you're handsome you're funny you love the things you're interested in sociable you know, and you've come from a nice family, nice place. Look where we're recording this. You're in your own <laughs> space. It's lovely. <laughs> you've come through a tough life and you come out the other side of it on top. You've built a whole organization around this experience that's now going on to help other people. We're, we're recording a podcast 130 something now. And when, yeah. we, when we started, it's hun- it was we were in the tens, and I was <laughs> I was already standing up and clapping. You know, you've got a lot to be proud of. Thank you, man. You've got a lot to be confident about, and mm. you've got a lot less to worry about than you think, especially in the romantic sense. Yeah, it shouldn't be something that has to cause you anxiety. And I know that at some point you're just gonna basically be free of that and get to enjoy it because you deserve to i hope so mate thank you for the kind words i think it's also the the sense that what i spoke about earlier in that i've not had like a proper long-term relationship which i think is to do with all the things we've spoken about and that and i remember speaking to a girl once and she asked me because i think she was she probably had some things that she was projecting or she had maybe been fucked over in the past Mm -hmm. and disclosing that was she was like oh that's a red flag you know da, 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 because mm-hmm. she obviously jumped to the conclusion that i was a fuck boy or something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I immediately was like, no, nah, I'm not dealing with this girl. I just longed her off after that. Because that's, things like that piss me off. Yeah. And it's like, well, I've just been vulnerable to you. I've just expressed something that I didn't really want to talk about, but you've pushed me on it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say, and then you've reacted like that. That's so fine. that those are things I find difficult true, as well. But remember, the people that happens in any walk of life to any individual, there's people that they don't match up. And it's, yeah. you don't need to be, you don't need to hang on it. You can just say, yep, yeah, that wasn't the one. And the only word of advice I'd have is that there's no rush to find the right person. People often feel lonely and feel like they need someone to kind of fight their loneliness, but there's no rush. The right person at the right time will just fall into your life without (laughs) you even realizing it. They might have already, they might have not, they might not even be there yet, but make sure that you live your life make sure that when you interact with those kind of people, it's full of love and care and, and you'll be absolutely fine. So I hope so, mate. Get ready for it and look forward to it. Okay, Freddie. So to come to an end, I wanted to speak and return to this idea that you feel like you have healed now and you're over the hill and you've gone through this quite tumultuous period in your life where you speak about in your articles about a phoenix from the flame kind of <laughs> idea of like that yeah, is forks a, forks yeah. from harry potter yeah yeah you're now you know you're looking out into this new space you feel more equipped better equipped to go and explore it you know and to enjoy it again and although you might feel scarred you know and often these scars like a physical scar they heal but they're present you know, and it's not worth ignoring them. Maybe it's better to accept them, to move forward. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, you're living in your own space. Um, <laughs> Finally. Yeah. yeah, you're, you know, you've had this positive impact of your therapy. Your mental health seems great. Like we've spoken about your aesthetic, your skin, you know, you've definitely been, I'm always speaking to you about exercise <laughs> as well. So it's like, Now that you're on this positive trajectory, I want to see how do you see yourself embarking on this new journey of of enjoyment? Yeah, it's a good question. I have done a lot of growing in the last three years. I've been red-pilled on so many subjects. I've got friends from all political persuasions now. I've had my love of reading books reignited because of the pod and you've seen my bookcase it's stacked with yeah. books i'm trying to read a book a week at the moment if i can depending on the book size and then and the podcast has changed my life in so many ways i've had so many experiences that i would never have gotten the opportunity to have without it i hope i've helped a lot of people along the way and i feel like as you said i've left this trauma state that i was living in for most of my life and I didn't realize it was a trauma state until you come out of it and it's almost like you see the world differently and I see in people what I used to be I was in that victim mentality and I don't say that as a negative thing or to belittle myself but just as a recognition of the mindset I was in and I see that in other people I want to try and help them get out of that space and to take ownership of themselves and to flourish and to thrive and I hope in the next few years that I can do that it does feel like I'm catching up on life like I said at the start of the pod because I haven't had as many experiences at my age that other people will have had but I know I don't need to compare myself to others but sometimes you can slip into that a little bit Mm -hmm. because naturally you'd be like that and I hope I can just kick on from here you know I've 
got a few objectives I want to try and reach. I've got, you know, a really good support network. I've got people like you. I've got people who I've had on the pod who are really good friends of mine now and mm. strangers that I never thought I'd be able to interview. I've interviewed musicians that I used to listen to as a kid and a teenager that I've now been able to listen to. So it's, yeah, it's been a privilege and I know I'm only one person and there's things I might not be able to achieve with event that I want to because of just how life is and that's fine. But there's also things that I hope I can achieve in the future. So yeah, I'm just trying to be as positive as I can. I'm a lot better at riding the ups and downs now of life than I was before. I think that's the main thing, just being able to ride the downs and being able to manage them and come out the other side and be in a in a good shape so Mm. yeah well i think that that's a great place to end it and i just wanted to say thank you again for doing this and sharing this with everyone with all of the listeners i know firsthand from the people that i've introduced vent to and the pod to just from their reactions how helpful it is for each individual whether they have had to experience it or haven't the work that you're doing is amazing and the fact that you're doing this all off your own back and it's been born out of your own experience is incredible so freddie i just want to say thank you again and how much that the listeners and i appreciate what you're doing and i just want to also say what you've been through has been really tough what you're doing now is incredible to see what you're doing now and oh, get me emotional mate <laughs> and where you're going is really exciting you know and you should be should be excited about it and i think that you're in the best space i've ever seen you to be ready to enjoy it so i hope i can enjoy it with you as well <laughs> and, uh, and i'll see you in the next one cheers mate thank you very much for the kind words i couldn't think of a better person to interview me about this and I've really enjoyed this and it's been great sitting on my own sofa on the other side and not being the interviewer for once. So yeah, thank you. And I hope the listeners have enjoyed this and have got to the end of this. So yeah, I appreciate everything that you've done. That's why I try and support all the work that you do and and the stuff you do with love time as much as I can and be your sort of unpaid (laughs) promoter in some sense for it. And as you have been an unpaid promoter for me for the just checking in night. So yeah, thank you again, mate. And hopefully we'll do another pod like this soon. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Well, that's all we've got time for on my episode of the Just Checking In podcast. It was really cathartic for me to get all of this out in the open and be on the other side of the mic again. I hope your listeners have enjoyed it and perhaps even made you reflect on what you need to do to take the next step in your mental health journey. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to everyone who's tuned into this episode of the pod. If you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation by visiting our GoFundMe. That link is on our link tree. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent.